Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Hi there, everybody. Oh, this is quite a lot of lovely faces out there. Did you put on your best faces today? It's great to see you. So hello to everybody at Balham, it says down here. And hello if you're online or if you're listening to the podcast. And and Mike said, um, welcome if you've just come to church for the first time to this church. But I don't know if there's anybody who's in church for the very first time today or, or maybe returning after a time away. And you are very, very welcome. And I can remember the first time I went to church and I just felt so awkward and uncomfortable and wondered if anything weird was going to happen. And it didn't, of course, and it won't here today. So do relax if that's you. And um, I also wondered if I was going to be bored out of my brain. So I hope whatever I have to say will be at least of some interest to you. So, um, are we sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Let me start with a prayer. Oh Lord, you are so good to us. So, so good to us. Thank you for your presence here today. Would you take your truths and put them deep within us? And just be with us this time in your love. In your precious name, amen. So, we're halfway through this really strange but interesting book of Jonah. Let me bring us up to speed. Um, Mike began two weeks ago with chapter one, and he called Jonah the runaway believer or the anti-prophet. And he showed us a map of where Jonah was. And you could see Jonah... Nineveh, Jonah, Tarshish, and he was just trying to get really far away from God. Mike also managed to say Tarshish at least 16 times in one sentence without stumbling. Well done, Mike. Um, And he talked about the consequences of disobedience and what causes us to distance ourselves from God. And then last week, Andy asked us to imagine what it was like being inside the big fish, and it was gruesome, it was smelly, it was loud, and um, and that was, that was quite a disturbing time. Maybe that was a bit weird. But he also showed us a painting of a remarkably clean-looking Jonah being vomited onto the beach. But I don't know if you can just see it. Chapter 2, verse 5, says he had seaweed round his head. So I don't know if you can see that. Anyway, um, Andy took us through chapter 2, Jonah's repentant prayer. And then he took us to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus praying, not my will, but yours. So I'm going to take 20, 25 minutes to go through chapter 3. So let me read it. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh 
and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals or herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring them, bring on them the destruction he had threatened. As I say, in the NIV, the title heading is Jonah Goes to Nineveh. But in the message, which is much more down to earth, it says, will God change his mind? You can almost see it as a banner headline on a newspaper, can't you? So I, I was going to say I was going to talk about Jonah and then the Ninevites and then God. But you know when you kind of wake up in the middle of the night and you've got something going through your mind, it struck me that, well, yes, it's a bit about Jonah and a bit about the Ninevites, but it's really all about God. So, here we go. I don't know if you noticed, but chapter 3 starts exactly like chapter 1. God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh, preach the message I gave you. And it just struck me. I wonder what God sounded like to Jonah, and whether his voice was different the first time to the second time. Was he just as loving and majestic, or was he getting a bit tetchy now? Who knows? Who knows? But the important thing here is that God is giving Jonah a second chance. And through that, he's giving the Ninevites a second chance. And I'm... Yeah, sorry. I'm twitching a bit with my fingers here. Right. There's lots and lots of stunning verses about God wanting to use weak and sinful people. And he's chosen us to do amazing things in the kingdom, but with his strength. So Isaiah 41, verse 13. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand, and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. And then 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Isn't it wonderful? 
God full of grace and mercy, and he loves giving all his children chances. And if they need them like Jonah, second chances and third chances and fourth chances. And in the Old Testament, we read about David. This is the shepherd boy anointed as king. He saved the Israelites from the Philistines by knocking out Goliath with a stone. God said of him, he is a man after my own heart. And surprisingly for one so blessed and holy, David found himself lusting after Bathsheba, took her to his bed, and she became pregnant which wasn't in David's plan at all. So he called Bathsheba's husband Uriah back from war so that hopefully he'd get together with his wife and the baby could be blamed on him. But it turns out that Uriah had a lot more integrity at that point in time. And he said, I can't lie with my wife. He didn't know why David wanted him to, obviously. I can't lie with my wife while all my fellow soldiers are suffering at the war. So he slept outside the gate and then went back to the war. So David sent a letter with him to give to whoever was running the war at the time, saying, put Uriah right in the middle of the fighting. Put him literally in the firing line. That happened. Uriah got killed. David murdered Uriah. And you would think that God's wrath would just be poured out all over David. And what does David do? Uh, sorry, what does God do? He sends Nathan the prophet to him to tell him a little story about a lamb that was stolen. And David gets so incensed about this. He said, whoever did that should be killed. And Nathan said, that's you. And David realized his sin and he was, devastated. But God accepted his repentance and he restores him and he uses him so powerfully. If God hadn't done that, would we have the Psalms today? There's David's repentance Psalm, Psalm 51, which is beautiful. And then there's the go-to, my go-to psalm, Psalm 23. And whenever I'm in trouble or pain, or even when I'm really happy, I like to wrap myself in that psalm and just be comforted and oh, soothed. And who wouldn't want to rest in green pastures beside quiet waters while their soul's restored? But it's not only in the Old Testament that we have people who need second chances. There's Peter, Jesus' special friend, top disciple. He's the one God used to say, you are the Christ. And then just before Jesus is crucified, he says to Peter, oh, um, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, no, no, not me. No, sorry. Sorry, you are really wrong. And then a few hours later, he says, I don't know that man, and runs away. And what would I do if somebody did that to me? 
I'd probably never speak to them again. I'd be hurt, devastated, too personal, too close. But what does Jesus do? Just after he rises up from the dead, meets the women, he gives them a message, tell Peter I'm alive. And then what does he do? Goes out to Peter and the disciples, makes them breakfast on the beach. Breakfast, Adam. And, um, and then he recommissions him and he says, you are the rock on which I will build my church. So if that hadn't happened, where would we be this morning? Who knows? There would be no church for us to go to. Um, and I have to tell you that it's not only in the Bible where people need second chances. Um, growing up, I think I always knew Jesus wanted me. But I was a wild child and um, I was having way too much fun and uh, oh, didn't have time for all that. And um, God reminded me um, in the worship last Sunday that when I was 17, he'd sent somebody to, a bunch of people to meet me, to tell me about him, and, and just to kind of introduce themselves. But I said, not today, and walked away. And my life is, well, it wasn't a really pretty story, and it wasn't God-honoring in any way. Um, and you would think that God would say, Waste of time, I've tried. Can't be bothered with Christine. But he didn't. He sent um, a handsome young engineer called Ian <laughs> to meet me, tell me the gospel, introduce me to his Lord and friend and saviour, the Jesus I'd been turning my back on. And I said, yes, I'm in. And if I hadn't, who would be standing up here today? Oh, wow. During the week, um, we were watching a, a Zoom meeting uh, with some of the um, church planting team, and we, we listened to James Rankin from Cardiff Vineyard, and he, he was talking about Elijah and all sorts of things, and then at one point, he just said this one sentence, this one question. What do you think God has created you for? What do you think God has created you for? And I think that's a question for all of us, isn't it? Maybe something to put on the something to think about this week list. So that's the, the first part. Chances, second chances, God being gorgeous. And the next point, let's move on to the Ninevites and see what we can see in their part of the story. I love the message translation. It's just so, I don't know, cheeky, I think. Um, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, um, One day long ago, God's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son, up on your feet, on your way to the big city of Nineveh, preach to them. I'm in, they're in a bad way. And I can't ignore it any longer. But Jonah still doesn't like the Ninevites. 
They are a dark, hard, hateful people. And maybe he's jealous too that God wants to talk to them and be kind to them. Phil next week is going to tell us a lot about Jonah and what he's thinking and how he's feeling. So I won't steal his thunder, even though he's not here today, is he? No. Anyway, wait for next week's episode. But just a story that popped into my mind. Some years ago, um, we were at a Vineyard Leaders Conference, and Putty Putnam was up on the stage. How many of you know Putty from... Loads of you. Funny guy, isn't he? And he was up on the stage with John Wright, the national director. And Putty saying to John, oh, I heard you were a jeweler. And John said, yeah. And Putty said, did you make that ring? And John said, yeah. But he said, can I look at it? And he looks at the ring and he goes, well, that's not very good, is it? <laughs> oh, he was shrieking and howling in the audience. And when we'd settled down, Putty said he actually quite did like the ring, um, but he wanted to make a point that by dissing the ring that John had made is like us dissing the children of God and dissing God. So every time we're judgmental, hurtful, make fun of, disrespect anybody else, we are dissing God and his creation. And that was a really, yeah, it was a telling point that just to be careful of what we say and how we think. And what does Jesus say in this situation? John chapter 9, no, sorry, John chapter 7, there is a woman who's been found in adultery. Nothing about the bloke. The woman is brought to Jesus for judgment. And um, Jesus says, the, the crowd there was so angry. I mean, they were just ready to tear it to bits. Righteous anger. And Jesus says, just stop a minute. Look at yourselves. Anyone without any sin can throw a stone at her. And they all kind of looked at themselves and realized it wasn't them, and they all slunk away. And it's not just angry crowds. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So let's keep this in mind when we're looking at others and judging them. Like Jonah should have kept that in mind when he was judging the Ninevites. And it's a lesson for all of us. And another saying from Jesus, Matthew 22 Jesus replied to a question, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So our Jonah was finally obeying God, but was he loving God? And was he loving his neighbor? Who knows? Maybe Phil will tell us next week. 
he dutifully goes to Nineveh and gives the five-word sermon in Hebrew, which is actually a bit longer in ours. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's fairly bleak, isn't it? Now, at preaching school, we're taught to consider our audience, to engage with them, to be seeker-sensitive. And I don't think Jonah had been to preaching school. (laughs) But he was dutifully doing what God commanded. And the Ninevites hear this, and they believe, and they trust God will be very angry unless they change. And that sounds a bit weird that the, the Ninevites are listening to God and obeying. But Romans 2, in the message, says, When the outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. So Nineveh had God's law woven into them. They heard God, they recognized that they'd been living wrong, and they humbled themselves and fasted in the dust. And it all happened so quickly that most of Nineveh was in the dust by the time the king hears about it. But he does the same thing. Takes off his robe, puts on sackcloth into the dust, and he gives his edict. Let everyone call urgently on God. Give up their evil ways and violence. Who knows God may yet relent. And with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so we will not perish. Um, The Bible for Life, it's a commentary that Matt Wood, who's preaching in Battersea today, told me about. The Bible for Life calls this an outstanding description of sincere repentance, especially from a king who's not a Jew. So what's our lessons here? When we look at ourselves, are we quick to judge others? not loving our neighbours quite as we should. And maybe, is it because we're jealous of God's kindness? And let's not be surprised who God talks to and who hears him and obeys him. The sailors in chapter 1, they had their own gods, um, and, and they were calling out to them, but they saw the power of our God when they chucked Jonah over the side and the storm was stilled. And it says, they greatly feared the Lord and sacrificed to him and made vows to him. And they were the ones who had to tell Jonah it was time he he was starting praying. And the Ninevites heard God's message too, and it was so real and so powerful that those dark, hard, hateful people repented in the dust. And it makes me wonder, how does that compare to my prayer life and my confidence in God? Maybe something to put on my things to consider list. But do notice, God was right. Nineveh was overthrown. Not by God pouring out his wrath and it being flattened, 
but by the people hearing God and changing their minds. Their thoughts were overthrown. Their lives were overthrown. Nineveh was overthrown, completely as God planned. And then, kind of coming in to land, just circling a bit, is this verse 10. God saw what they had done, that they turned away from their evil lives. He did change his mind about them. What he said he would do to them, he didn't do. And when I came to this point in my preparation, I had this strangest it was almost like a physical sensation. We're planning to go up into the roof of our house and build a bedroom up there with massive windows and a Juliet balcony. And I kind of have this, um, I can almost see myself rushing up with a sound of music at the moment and flinging open the windows and seeing the sky and the sea. And it was just that kind of uplift. And I had that same feeling when I was working on this. Tim Keller talks about the mystery of God's mercy. And what can we learn about God and his mercy from this chapter? Well, I have to confess, I started writing all sorts of flowery stuff about God watching over us and never slumbering or sleeping and the sun shining on the righteous and the unrighteous. And I was boring myself with it, so I thought you wouldn't like it either. And then I found that others had said what I wanted to say so much better. So Psalm 145, one of David's psalm. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. And then an old hymn came to mind. It was written by a guy called Frederick Faber. He was a Yorkshireman. Um, he was a member of the Church of England who became a Roman Catholic. And he thought the Catholic Church should have some really great hymns, like the ones Charles Wesley and John Newman wrote. So Faber wrote 150 of them. And here's one I'd like to read it to you. Trust me, you do not want me to sing it to you. <laughs> but it is beautiful, especially if it's spoken, not my voice. <clears throat> There's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in God's justice, which is more than liberty. There's a welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior and healing in his blood. But we make God's love too narrow by false limits of our own. And we magnify its strictness with a zeal God will not own. For the love of God is broader than the measures of the mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Isn't that beautiful? <clears throat> And as always, there's um, a few points I'd like to pick out from today. <coughs> Firstly, on the chances God offers us. Is God calling to you? 
does he want you to take a chance on him? A chance of eternal life. To become the person he created you to be. Or, or is it that you said yes before, but the relationship that you have isn't quite as wonderful as it was, or what do you want it to be? Is he offering you a second or third or fourth chance? Chance to get really close to him again. To become a co-worker with him in the kingdom. Doing work, which he says in Ephesians 2.10, he has planned in advance for you. Is it time to become what God's called you to be? Do you even know what that is? Or do you know that you've not been looking at people through God's eyes, loving and valuing them as children of God? Fearfully and wonderfully made, fearfully and wonderfully loved. Or do you just want one of those sound of music experiences and open up your heart and mind to him today and to be held and treasured in his love? If you need anything from God today, you can come up here and kneel at the cross and speak to him. And there will be people here to pray with you if you want them to. But let's worship now. And let's ask him what he wants us to do. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.